Welcome to the Pastor's Cut. This week we're on with Dan Osborne, pastor of our Forest Glen Church, and talking about what got cut from his sermon on Acts chapter 8, as well as Elton John, the pattern of Pentecost, and God's surprising activity in our lives. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started. I'm Trevor Lovell, and this is the Pastor's Cut with Dan Osborne. Dan, good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me back, Trev. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to the time together. So, so I got a question to open us up here, and um, it's a, it's a more serious one. So this is this is what it is. Uh, it has to do with kind of what you enjoy in your private time. You know, what do you enjoy more, listening to Elton John or reading <laughs> Tom Clancy? <laughs> um, <laughs> I I don't know. Um, I probably listening to Elton John more. Um, I think (laughs) that probably feels like a really random question, but (laughs) let me just give your listeners some context. So um, the other night I was sitting at home Monday night. I, I always invite you over to hang out with me. And I think almost you, you never take me up. I I often, I often take up the offer. No, no. In three years, we probably hung out twice. And, so Monday night, I invited you to come over, and you said, no, I've got better things to do. Um, so I just sat at home by myself because my wife was at small group or something, and I just listened to Elton John and read a Tom Clancy novel, and I thought, I am old. Like, I, I'm reading <laughs> a submarine book and listening to my parents' music. Um, so that's the context for the question. Just in case you were wondering why Trevor asked me that question. Yeah. Uh, I probably Elton John. I, I don't know. I really, I am a huge Elton John fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just like, how could you not like his music? It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. Yeah. So it is good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's hard to read to Elton John though, because you just start singing along. <laughs> it probably you doesn't know? fit like the vibe of a Tom Clancy novel either. No, no, I was reading Hunt for Red October, so it's like a pretty intense scene of them hunting down the uh, Russian submarines, and, uh-huh. you know, a big attack is about to happen, and, you know, Elton John singing Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in the background. It, just, <laughs> it, it did not fit. Yeah, yeah. It did not fit, so. Okay, so I actually, I do have a, I do have a more serious question, um, but, but thanks for <laughs> Thanks for your answer on that. But uh, yeah, what I wanted to ask is because you're, uh, we were just talking beforehand. You're about um, basically about six years into full time ministry, and yep. uh, so I was curious, how have things changed for you in your experience of, of being in ministry, uh, serving as a pastor, um, from the way it is now to to how it felt in maybe your first or even your first couple of years in ministry? What what has what's kind of the biggest shift that you feel? Um. I'm sure this will change over the years. Uh, I'll probably still feel like this, but maybe to different degrees in the future. I I think very easily, I would say the last year and a half has been uh, the hardest season, you know, uh, to be, to be a pastor. Um, you know, a lot of people had, had a very, very hard season. And I think that would be true for a lot of professions. But just, you know, you learn a lot when there's uh, a high, there's a lot of stress. You need to make a lot of decisions. Um, it just was a season where stuff was coming up 
you know, one after another, uh, almost, you know, without fate, without end. So one of the big lessons I learned, particularly in the last year, and I think this marks a lot of things I had done over the last six years is that I, I cannot be a specialist in everything. Um, and I need to be okay with that. Like there are things that I, uh, I want to be very proficient in and, you know, want to have an informed opinion on things, but at the same time, I cannot be uh, a faithful pastor, um, a uh, civil rights historian. Um, I cannot be a CDC expert for, you know, deciphering regulations on, you know, the spread of infectious diseases. And I can't be, uh, you know, John Maxwell type, you know, leader also building a huge organization. Like you cannot be all of those things. And God has not called me to be all of those things. He's called me to be a pastor. Um, And so there's almost a freedom in that, in recognizing like you can't be, you cannot be everything in ministry. You can, you cannot be everything and you won't be, you won't be perfect at everything that you do. And that was, you know, that, that is very freeing because I feel like I've spent a lot of time over the last six years being frustrated that I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have, you know, every skill set. Uh, yeah. That sounds really vague, but, but there, was, there was a lot of that this year where, you know, people would kind of expect you to have a very thought out and a specific opinion about a wide range of things. And what's challenging is when people are asking those things, those happen to be the areas that they really, really care about, right? They're not the ones who are asking for everything. They're asking for one particular thing, but then you have everybody asking for one particular thing and you just, you don't have, you don't have the knowledge base or skill set uh, as a pastor to, to, to satis- to, you know, to, to engage with those things to mm-hmm. a satisfactory degree for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Intention that to some degree, I mean, I, I would, I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's true. Well, I, I feel like that's almost a tension you can feel more in the city because there's a greater, a greater diversity of people living in proximity yeah. to one another. And so it's like a pressure yeah. that, that you feel here where you're pulled in so many different directions and feel like you want to be an expert in all of them. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's impossible to be, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a, a lot of freedom in the idea that, you know, God has equipped me to be a shepherd. Like that's, that's a primary gift that I have. Um, and if I neglect that, you know, I, I want to spend my time in books and reading and engaging with a lot of different ideas. Like I, I want to chase those things down and do a deep dive. And yet I, I will do that only to the neglect of uh, the people God has entrusted to me. Uh, and I actually find a lot more joy in sitting with a couple, uh, meeting with people one-on-one than I do, you know, taking a, you know, a deep dive in some, some uh, topic. Uh, yeah. It's important to do those things, but I, that's not the only thing that I can give my time to. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, um so you preached at Forest Glen this past weekend, Acts chapter uh-huh. eight, verses one through eight was the kind of the focus. That was the passage yeah. you were working with. Could you give us a recap of that sermon? Yeah. So broadly, um, where I went, obviously a park, we were 
generally try and stay in the same passages across all of the park churches that we're preaching. And uh, I kind of felt like these Acts chapter eight, at least the first half, one through 25, is really there's two different things going on. Uh, and so I felt like I wanted to lean into the first half of this chapter uh, and find another way to teach about the second half. Uh, so, yeah, I only went through the first eight verses. And I found it very interesting, uh, kind of dug into the idea of persecution that these the Christians in Jerusalem, uh, after the execution of Stephen, experienced, you know, great persecution, uh, talked a little bit about what that looks like for them to have experienced uh, the, uh, the torture, the jailing uh, that's happening for really all of the Christians here. Um, and at the same time, as a result of one of the worst experiences of their lives, uh, they are scattered to the very places that God said, or that, that Jesus says in, in the, the great commission in acts that they're going to go right next chapter yeah. one, verse eight, it's, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens in acts chapter eight now is they are getting to from Jerusalem to Judea, uh, Samaria, uh, the, the second half of chapter eight, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, like he's meeting someone from the ends of the earth uh, in, yeah. in that world, in that context. And so you're seeing the fulfillment of Acts chapter one, verse eight, but it's not happening because of this triumphalistic expansion of the gospel where they've completely indoct, you know, they've, they've mm-hmm. uh, captured Jerusalem with, with the gospel. Now they're moving to Judea. They get that region. Then the Samaria, it's not these concentric circles, just moving out in a rapid triumphalistic expansion. Yeah. It's happening because of the suffering uh, and persecution that these Christians are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So they will be his witnesses, just not in the way that they would expect at all. Uh, and I tried to tie that to the deeper themes that uh, a lot of us look at in our own stories, where we go through seasons of, of deep hardship and suffering. Uh, and yet this is often the way uh, that God is advancing his purposes for our good in the world uh, yeah. is not through these mountaintop experiences, but through the valleys uh, of, of hardship. Um, yeah. And I think the first half of, half of chapter eight is a model for what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. It, it almost reminds me of like in the Gospels, how, you know, Jesus is his teaching the disciples, he's saying things to him, even in like in Luke, you know, he's explaining he's going to die and rise again, specifically around and that, it, but, but they, they just miss it over and they over again. It, yeah. And things kind of yeah. like come to fulfillment in a way that they, that, that was like yeah. laid out plain before them, but they, they just didn't understand until it happened. And I feel yeah. like we're seeing the same thing in the book of Acts with, you know, those instructions this is what's going to happen, Acts 1-8, and yet continually yep. it happens in a way that's not how they're imagining it. Yeah, it's very unexpected. It's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you should be surprised by the, the theme of suffering that shows up in Acts chapter 8, because that's the thing that ties all of the stories together in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's mm-hmm. speech. I mean, he's running through some of the most traumatic moments in Israel's history. Uh, or like the high points of suffering that they have experienced. And it's like he retells their story through the lens of trauma. Uh, and then it's trauma, again, that is the, the means by which God is bringing about his, his uh, good purposes in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's this very hopeful idea, ultimately, because it means our uh, suffering is not meaningless. 
uh, even if we don't know what it means yet, doesn't mean there is, there is no meaning at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. And so let's move into the what got cut section. And uh, cause we got, there's some pieces here to, to Acts chapter yeah. eight that are pretty interesting. Some ideas that kind of get touched on and, and then Luke, Luke doesn't actually give like a lot of attention to them, but they're pretty significant no. things. Um, and so looking forward to just spending some time discussing these. So, yeah, yeah, no, there's, I mean, obviously I, I cut a lot. I cut verses nine through 25 in, in uh, <laughs> Acts chapter eight, uh, where yeah, you, like you said it well, um, mm-hmm. that there's big things that happen that Luke just kind of, he kind of brushes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't dive too much into that, which probably says more about us in our current context. The fact that he doesn't feel like he needs to really explain some of these elements. It's more normal for him. And it's, and yet it's so strange for us. So like one of the first things is uh, these, you know, the uh, in Simon or uh, Philip goes down to Samaria uh, and you see lots of people putting their faith in Christ. And one of them is a magician named Simon. Um, and you know, broadly, one of the things that happens is the apostles hear about uh, these people, the Samaritans becoming Christians, uh, and they have to go down and they baptize them in the, in the Holy spirit because they have not received the Holy spirit yet. So I think that raises a a big question for us of like, okay, Mm -hmm. uh, how does that work? Like, is, is that something, is that a special thing that we should still expect today? Uh, like a separate baptism almost in the Holy spirit uh, or does that, does that happen at conversion? Does like, when, when does it happen? What's going on with that? The second thing is the fact that Simon actually is a magician. Like he's doing things to draw a big crowd. Uh, and it seems like there is uh, supernatural influence uh, in, in his life uh, yeah. that is allowing for, uh, for this, for, for him to actually do something real. So how, how do you make sense of that? And then, uh, you know, you preach the passage. I mean, would, you probably cut some stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually those were, um, I was able to like slide in a little bit around the, the Holy spirit and the, the reception and kind of what, what might've been happening there and, and some, some reasoning behind it. I actually had a whole point around the, like Simon's magic and the casting out of unclean spirits that I had to cut. So I feel like if we could, we could just camp out on each one of these and talk a little bit about them. Um, Maybe starting with the with the Holy Spirit one. Well, can I, can I back up? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, because yeah. nobody ever asks you questions on this. <laughs> uh-huh. At the end, mm-hmm. Peter has this statement um, to to Simon, yeah. and he says, "Repent, therefore, of your wickedness. Uh, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven." For I see that you are in gall, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. <laughs> And Simon answered, uh, you know, pray to the Lord that none of this, uh, what you said, it will happen to me. So uh, do you believe that Simon's conversion was Mm -hmm. legit? Like, was he actually a Christian? Um, Like, well, I I think that that's a good question. Uh, I want to say that, yes, his conversion was legitimate even before this. Um, But if you if you back up. When he, when he comes to faith, when he says he believes and is baptized, he, there's that word continued. He continued with Philip. It's actually the same word that Luke uses throughout the book um, 
to, to describe an intensity of devotion. Like in chapter one, they're devoted to prayer. Chapter two, mm-hmm. devoted to the apostles teaching in the fellowship. And so it's like, he's sticking to, to Philip like a second shadow. And it's, and, and then it's, it's almost like a clue, like, Hey, pay attention. Yeah. He, he, he believes, but something's going to happen with this guy. And then you, you see that his life is still oriented around gaining power because when he sees them receive the spirit, which also tells us that the reception of the spirit was marked by something obvious in, in this instant instance. Yeah. He, he wants it. He wants that power for himself and offers to pay for it. And uh, if you dig into Peter's, if you dig into those two things, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, the, mm-hmm. the gall of bitterness is coming from Deuteronomy 29, 18, which is drawing on this language of describing a person who's caught up in idolatry, the worship of mm. something other than God. And so basically Simon his life is oriented around power. He, he worships power, um, probably because when he has it, it fulfills some longing, some need that he has unmet uh, within. It seems to be that he wants attention, wants significance, because that's the message that he preaches um, about his magic, that I'm somebody great, you know? Yeah. And he wants to get that back. And then the bond of iniquity is coming from Isaiah 58, 6, which is getting at the the really, like the depth of, sin's grasp on our souls when we give into it over and over that it eventually it has us enslaved and so the connection being that we you know when we when we fall into this pattern of serving an idol so it will give us something whether it's love or attention or uh, power sense of significance whatever that is the more that we do that instead of actually getting what we want the more we find ourselves enslaved and trapped within that Um, and that's what peter calls him on saying you believe in Jesus, you've been baptized, but your life is still oriented around power rather than him. Mm. And then in his response, he calls Jesus Lord. And that, that to me seems to indicate that the shift that needs to take place, the repentance is happening, that, um, that he now views Jesus as Lord and his life is oriented around him. Um, so yeah, I would say he believes initially, but things are still, like there's still some significant change that needs to change, that needs to happen. Um, and then it seems to, to shift after that. But, but people are kind of, they, they are sort of like not in complete agreement in the commentaries on that. No, no. I, I, I think it, I feel like a lot of, uh, I feel like Acts is, is rather optimistic. So mm-hmm. like when Peter doesn't, or when, when Luke doesn't directly answer those questions, I, I think there's freedom to assume that there's like, we don't know what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter five. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, are they forgiven? Is it possible that they were genuine believers or were they never Christians to begin with? Right. Like th- those yeah. kinds of questions. I think we're meant to read acts with a bit more of an optimistic lens rather than a pessimistic one. Um, so anyway, just that's good. That's good. It's a good answer. Thanks. And so, yeah. So the reception of the spirit, it was marked by something obvious that Simon clearly sees and he wants the ability to do the same. And so the question is, what, uh, what, what marked that and kind of what's happening here and how should that lead us to expect things today, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I don't know what, what marked it. I mean, flames of, of tongues of fire again, maybe. Uh, that's, that's obviously what happened in, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. But I don't think, does Luke say that? No, that's the thing. It's really interesting that... Um, I think part of what plays into this is that if you go back to Acts chapter one, eight, Jesus says, yeah. you're going to, you know, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end yeah. of the earth. I, I, I got to imagine that because there's Jewish people 
in all of those places, the expectation was that the gospel is going to move forward amongst Jewish people because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's our Christ, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's kind of surprising that Philip begins preaching to Samaritans, but actually, if you draw back their history, like Jewish people understood them as separate, but they are the, like the remnant of the Northern kingdom of Israel. So they can trace pieces of their lineage back and they even had yeah. an expectation of the Messiah. Yeah. And so they're like, it's like one step removed ethnically from the people of Israel. Yeah. But it makes sense that he can preach the Christ to them because they're expecting a Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so do you think that the baptism of the Holy spirit piece is that, is that something like, why does that happen here? Why, why don't they receive the spirit at, at conversion? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I, I think what's happening is the, it's basically, I think it's God's like stamp of approval on his surprising activity to the disciples as the gospel moves across ethnic boundaries that they never thought it would have. And yeah. so the first step is the Samaritans. And then you see this happen again, actually, in Acts chapter 10 with um, Cornelius, uh, the, him and his family, the Gentile family. When Peter yeah. gives the report of them coming to faith, he says they received the spirit in the same way that we did. And so yeah. it's almost like the precedent is established at Pentecost in chapter two. Yeah. And then it repeats every time the gospel crosses an ethnic line in a way that the disciples would not have expected first to the Samaritans yeah. and then to yeah. Gentiles to, to basically say like, yeah, this like yeah. God saying this is happening. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree with that. One of the things I wrote down uh, and ended up cutting because I, I didn't deal with this section at all uh, is like, th this is, it, it's almost as if Luke is slowing down the scene because a lot of what happens in um, like, you really do not get a lot of details in the first half of Acts chapter eight, right? Like all, yeah. all you know is that there is some big persecution. Paul is rat or Saul is ravaging the church mm -hmm. uh, and people are scattered all over the place. So it's like rapid movement happening very fast. But as soon as you get down to chapter nine, it's like, it's like you're watching this stuff happen in slow motion. So, for example, like if you're watching a, you know, a, a football game, there's a hard call. Mm -hmm. um, they'll play the replay and they'll slow it way down so that you can see every detail happening. It uh, doesn't mean that event itself was any slower. Uh, it just means the way that you're experiencing it is, is, is allowing you to take in every detail, detail to a much greater extent. And what I think he is doing in, in chapter eight with Simon and the believers in Samaria receiving the Holy Spirit as a separate action is very clearly marking out like exactly what you said. This is, pay attention. I want you to see this specific thing. The Holy Spirit is not just for one group of people. It is for all believers in Christ. And that includes the Samaritans. And so I'm going to slow this down so that you can see this specific detail of what's happening. Um, and I think that's, you know, like you said, this a very similar thing will happen when Peter goes to Cornelius uh, in Acts chapter 10. And it's even, it's even a longer, uh, you know, uh, way that this happens. It's even more drawn out yeah. um, because it's a more drastic change that the disciples would not have expected. Like you said. Yeah. And it's also, it's interesting that like Peter's there every time, like he's there at Pentecost, yeah. he experiences it it doesn't happen in Samaria until he's there. So he gets a front row view uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> and then again with Cornelius, like Peter is the one and he's, he's really at this point, the most significant leader. And so I think there's something to be said for uh, almost like his, 
it's just interesting to see the role that he plays, even jumping back to like Matthew 16, 18, and, and Jesus kind of giving the indication that Peter would play sort of a unique and a significant role in the establishment of the church. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and that's, that's not something that we, we should be entirely surprised by, like Jesus himself and talking about Peter. There's, of course, there's this whole play on words going on when he says, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock, I'm going to, I'm going to build, build my church uh, in Matthew. Yeah. Jesus has this conversation and, and the Roman Catholic church looks at that and, and does then trace its lineage back to Peter as the first Holy father, which eventually yeah. becomes the role of the Pope, right? Protestants tend to have a, a reaction like, Oh no, no, it doesn't mean that it means like it, it's on this rock, this Petros, which sounds like Peter uh, kind of thing. But, but at the same time, there is a special place set aside for Peter as the clear leader of the Jewish Christian movement. That, that's undeniable through Acts, and that's why you see it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you keep reading. Yeah. To the yeah. Book. He's going to have this very special place. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, so let's, let's jump to this other one. Simon the Magician, right? Is he uh, yeah. an, an impressive charlatan or is he, it seems like there's something else going on here. And, and even prior to that, you see Philip uh, casting, it says he's casting out unclean spirits. And yeah, um, yeah I'm just curious when, when, when you kind of, um, how would you speak to that, to what's happening there? Yeah, I, I think that we don't really have a category for the spiritual realm in Western culture, mm-hmm. um, largely because we're, we we have um, we've explained away, or at least think we've explained away uh, any kind of spiritual reality, um, or or we we don't we don't view the category as as significant itself, but. Th- this is why I think Luke doesn't spend too much time on it because I don't think any of his original readers at all would have had any issue with it. Um, mm-hmm. Like they just would have thought oh, he's a magician. So something, something is ha- like, there's something in the spiritual realm that I think is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does, that does happen. The same thing goes on with um, the uh, magicians in Pharaoh's court uh, in the, in the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. Like they're not just doing magic tricks, like, you know, Hey, yeah. what's behind your ear. Let me pull a snake out from behind your ear. Like there's, there is something happening there now. Exactly what that is. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we're meant to, again, there's another area where like, I don't think we're meant to read at read acts with like this very skeptical lens. Um, but take it as there's a spiritual influence that, Simon has. Yeah. And that, that may come with something. I don't know. I don't want to be more specific than that. How, how would you answer that? Yeah. I feel like, I, I think I would go in the same direction that um, like culturally in the West, you know, we're like shaped by the enlightenment, by modernity. And um, so sort of kind of, kind of limit ourselves in terms of knowledge to what can be verified. Um through observation, through repetition. And uh, so it doesn't leave much room for an understanding of the supernatural. Um, And yet at the same time, like that's when we talk about like facts and and that's kind of the way that we approach things. But then culturally you do see an interest in the supernatural, whether it comes to like like the movies and and the television shows that we watch and like, and enjoy that have to do with these things. But then also um, 
I don't know, even just see, I feel like you see um, like astrology and people, um, like you see those little stores like throughout the city. And, and I've heard that even LA has that to a much further degree than Chicago does of um, being able to like go in and, and have like readings take place and stuff like that. And um, so it, it's funny on the one hand, it's not considered like a verifiable type of knowledge, but on the other hand, there's yeah. an interest there, um, culture yeah. West and How so, so you, you are a pastor. Let me ask you this question. Um, I mean, there, there's obviously uh, a fascination with the occult. Yeah. Um, and let's set aside like a conversation around you know, things like Harry Potter. Let's set that aside for a second. What if someone came to you and said like, Hey, I'm doing this. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing this thing with like a Ouija board uh, next to like, is this, should I do this as a Christian? Um, yeah, I would, I would say absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Un unpack that for me. Yeah. I would say that um, like what we basically, you can't read through the new Testament without stumbling over the reality that we are surrounded by, um, by the supernatural, that there are, there's a spiritual reality that surrounds us that, uh, that that's real. Um, and there's certain ways I think, that we can tap into that, that aren't good for us, that, that in fact are very bad. There's ways to open doors to that, that can be very harmful. Um, and I would point to things like Ouija boards as, as one way of doing that. And, and so I would say, um, yeah, pastorally, um, I would say, no, stay, stay far from that. Um, on the other hand, if that's something that has happened in your past, I feel like, I feel like a lot of people who have had that sort of thing where they've done that and then they've come to faith, they'll even, they'll even speak in that way. They'll say, yeah, it's like, I, it's like opening a portal and there's a greater sensitivity to those things. Now, even though I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus now, I'm filled with the spirit of God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Like they, um, there's, there's almost like a heightened sensitivity to, I guess what you could call spiritual warfare to, to the demonic because of those prior experiences. And so I would say if that's something that people have opened themselves to in the past, there's still, I mean, you're still filled with the spirit now. And, and so there's no, there's no need to be afraid um, that we have, you know, been given this authority in Christ that, that you see throughout the gospels and um, you know, the God who created everything in like the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them is now the, the same spirit that was involved in that now lives in you. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, by no means should that be something that we engage with intentionally. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What, what would you say? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would offer anything different. I, I mean, if someone asked me that, I'd probably text you and then see what your response is, and I would tell them that. Um, no, yeah, I, I think, again, it, there's not re – reading through uh, the New Testament, we cannot and, – and believing that it's true, there is no way you can minim minimize the reality of the spiritual world around us. Um, you know, when, you know, Paul even talks about like, we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. Um, but against, um, how does he say it? Uh, I think powers and principalities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of darkness in Ephesians. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, it, it's not something that we often give a lot of time to, uh, and yet the new Testament points out that it is a very clear, real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's worth asking hard questions about, you know, the, 
what we do that has strong spiritual roots. Mm-hmm. Like th- there are a lot of cultural things that we find pretty normal that, that do have very strong ties to um, the spiritual realm Yeah, that we may want to be careful with, or uh, just think carefully about before engaging in those things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Um, yeah. Well, this, this has been a really, this has been a good conversation. I've, I, I'm actually, I'm curious. I want to say what, what are some of those things? If you would, if you would list those, were you going to add something there? Yeah, I was just, no. Well, I think one of them that is a classic example of something that Christians should wrestle with uh, is uh, something like yoga mm-hmm. that does have like, like it, it does mean something in other contexts with a very strong uh, spiritual attribute uh, in, in what you're doing and some of the poses and what they mean. Now, I, I am not of the opinion that Christians cannot do yoga. That, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but I do think to deny that there are uh, spiritual roots mm-hmm. um, to what is happening in that practice, I, I think is, is not, is, is, is not taking, uh, is not carefully thinking through that question as much as we, as much as we need to like any yeah. kind of practice where we intentionally try and open ourselves up to a spirit realm like that, that, that should give any believer in Christ pause. It's possible yeah. to do yoga without doing that. It's possible to do the stretches. I've done yoga, yeah. right? It kicked my butt. It was hard. <laughs> you know, I will say just, just in the context of this conversation and things that we're not making definitive statements, we're just saying it's, it's, it's worthwhile to think about it. Um, I'll say like the Enneagram is one interesting thing that, um, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I haven't like, I'm not like one of the people who've like bought books. I think it's interesting on a surface level, the way that it can kind of um, give some understanding to the way that we're yeah. wired. Uh, but I, I feel like I've, I've heard that the roots of it are pretty, um, they're, they're pretty interesting and not necessarily in the same way, like with what you're saying with yoga, there's some spiritual roots to it that could be uh, potentially troublesome. And I feel like what's interesting is the way you see people getting so fascinated with it, so into it. And even, tying it into Christianity in this sort of like syncretism rather than like, yeah, this is something that's kind of helpful to understand, you know, the way I'm wired. It's like beginning to tie it in with Christianity in a way that does seem syncretistic. And I think it's interesting. Do you think it's different from like how I I have not seen this. I've not seen people do the same thing with uh, the, uh, what's the other, the Myers-Briggs numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen it been taken to the same degree where it's like intentionally tried to work. Like it's, it's worked into Christianity and like tied into who Jesus is. And yeah, um, it's just seeing it stretched to such a degree, I think is, is interesting. Like almost. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's worthwhile to like, to, I think to be reflective about the way that you're engaging with it. Yeah. Yeah. Any kind, any kind of idea. I mean, Christianity obviously in, is interacts with big cultural ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, Trev, th- this this conversation could get us in a lot of trouble because it could go in so many different so many different realms. But but Christianity, like the Christian worldview, comes in and it starts to engage with um, other ideas in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do as followers of Christ is, is wrestle with you know how 
what does the gospel have to say about this idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we take the lens of the gospel and start to evaluate and think through other ideas? In Christianity, you will see throughout history, you know, someone will say, uh, like, yeah, you know, you know, Christmas was originally a pagan holiday. Yeah, it was. Fine. But what Christians were able to do is come in and take that time of year uh, and start to see a diff- attach a very different significance to it uh, yeah. in a way that is far, far more prominent in society now. Like our entire year, our times is, is shaped by Christmas. Now, that's not necessarily a, a good thing in itself, but, but it's had a powerful influence because Christianity is able to engage and sometimes appropriate the good within yeah. ideas. Yeah. I think the absolutely. same should be true in how uh, Christianity engages with other political ideas. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like th- there, there are, are things that we should be able to digest, think through, and then spit out the bad. Yeah. Um, not, yeah. not necessarily turn a blind eye and run away from, this is getting us into a very different uh, tangent, but. No, it's um, interesting. It's even like theologically, you see that over the scope of church history with like, platonic and like like plato's thought and uh and aristotle's thought like getting brought into almost like the water to wine idea and and those ideas coming to shape uh like the theology of the church and the understanding of the scriptures oh incredibly shaping right like this whole idea of uh god's the emotional life of god is he is he actually able to experience emotions in the way that the scriptures really seem to indicate that he does platonic ideas informing the the greek church fathers would say no he's Mm -hmm. not actually god god does not become angry he is always angry and sometimes like shows the side his angry side right (laughs) or god is always happy you know he's always you know something he just shifts and you see that side of him Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's very much informed by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, historic Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we've gone down a few rabbit, rabbit trails here. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is the podcast. Yeah. This is a podcast. Yeah. If, yeah, if, uh, if anybody's listening to this, just email Trevor because he thinks you shouldn't do yoga. That's oh, what he my. said. That's, that's the, <laughs> Uh, not what I said. Not what I said. Um, man, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation so much that I feel like there are a lot of fascinating things to kind of discuss here. Um, but we should probably, we should probably land the plane, bring this to a close. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. But um, yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope this isn't the last time you're going to invite me. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll have you back sometime. Sometime for sure. So time to, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's like when you say you're going to hang out with me sometime, eventually we should yeah. get something on the books. Yeah. That's you say no. You end up reading Tom Clancy and listening to Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, All right, right, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And again, if you have any questions you'd like us to discuss, you can feel free to send those in. You can email us at podcast at parkcommunitychurch.org, or you can drop a comment wherever you happen to be listening. But thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week with a new episode.